You might think that herbivores are getting most of their calories from carbohydrates, mm -hmm. but it turns out that they're eating fiber, which no mammal can digest, and they're letting the microbes in their colon turn that fiber into fat. So mm -hmm. even herbivores have a high fat diet. The mm -hmm. only stuff that goes to the colon to rot is actually fiber because right. we literally can't digest it and we literally need bacteria to digest it and that's what what rotting means. Humans are unique among species in being able to become ketogenic without caloric restriction. You look outside your window, how many of those plants out there can you eat? None of them probably, <laughs> right? But we had a few that we found that didn't kill us and we bred them extensively. But even those ones have some level of toxicity. It's just low enough that we can tolerate it. Body, mind, empowerment get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host Seamland and our guest is Amber O'Hearn. She has a master's degree in computer science from the U University of Toronto. She's the founder of leastauthority.com and kitaric.org. Her research includes experiments with ketogenic diets and she follows an all-meat-based carnivore diet. Amber, I'm glad that you could make it to the show and uh, I'm very excited for you to have her here. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. You eat a diet that's based on uh, mostly animal products. And like, can we maybe start off, you know, like, why did you get started with uh, something like that? Sure, yeah. It's not just... Um Based on meat, it's essentially only meat. I do drink coffee, and I've been known to have maybe a bite of um, cocoa or a pickle here and there, but that's very rare. I essentially eat only meat. Mm -hmm. I started um, on a more regular kind of low-carb diet, and I did that for 12 years before moving to this kind of diet, which I've been doing for about nine years now. Mm. So I have a lot of experience with a low-carb diet that has vegetables in it, Mm -hmm. and, and maybe a little bit of fruit. And I found a lot of benefits for me personally in removing all those plants and just sticking to meat. Hmm. So did you have like any health issues or, or the weight issues that made you co convert over to a, like a all zero carb diet? Yes. So initially when I took on a low carb diet, I had been having weight issues and the low carb diet resolved all of those for me. I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. But then over time, I, I had had a couple pregnancies where I didn't lose all the weight even on a low carb diet. And then I started even gaining more. Mm -hmm. And so I was very frustrated because I'd been researching about low carb diets for a long time. They had already worked for me. And I knew a lot of the science behind it being healthy. And I couldn't figure out why the diet that I knew should be working wasn't working for me. Mm. And so at a certain point, I just got so frustrated. I saw some people online who were talking about going to a completely carnivorous diet. And I thought, well, I could try that for a little while and maybe that will help. And then I can go back to the way I used to eat. So that's why I tried it. I had other health problems, but I didn't have any idea that they had a dietary connection. I had had depression for a long time, wow. ever since I was 20. Probably it started before. Mm -hmm. And what happened was when I tried this all-meat diet, all of my depression symptoms went away. And at first I thought maybe it was a coincidence, and I didn't know if it was going to stay. But when I, as I continued the all-meat diet, 
my problems with depression never came back. So that's why I've continued all this time. Hmm. Yeah, it's like very interesting that uh, a lot of people who tend to suffer from this kind of chronic inflammation uh, symptoms and uh, depression and uh, anxiety and things like that, you, most of it has to do with like the nutrition aspect. And uh, as they maybe go through like many of these elimination diets, they, they end up with only uh, all meat diet. And that's, that, that's the only thing that's going to make them feel better. So I feel like that's what happened to you as well. Like uh, you've, you got you. Don did a lot of experiments with different diets and you ended up with uh, uh, all meat diet, an animal, animal-based diet. So, but what does the carnivore diet actually look like? How do you eat in a given day? Well, I tend to follow my hunger and I don't usually eat in the morning, although if, if I feel like it, I will. But I typically have two meals a day, one around lunchtime and one in the early evening. And those can be the same thing or a different thing. They could be something that is more of a traditional breakfast here like bacon and eggs, or they could be a steak or a burger or a pork chop. I also, I do eat uh, chicken and fish and oysters and seafood, but if it gets too lean, then I would be adding some fat. Mm. Mm. So like you use like butter or things like that? Yes, I used to use butter almost exclusively, but over the years uh, from cooking so much with, especially if you cook uh, bacon in the oven or pork ribs or beef ribs, they yield so much fat. Mm. I started using the lard or the tallow from the things that I was cooking yeah. <laughs> and and I've come to prefer that even over butter. Mm -hmm. But uh, do, you, do you feel like, do you react negatively to these, uh, let's say like coconut oil or MCT oil? Have you tried those i've definitely tried coconut oil because and mct oil because they're so ketogenic and there was a time i do drink coffee and there was a time i thought it would be interesting to try the bulletproof style coffee with mm. butter and coconut oil what i find for me personally i used to have rosacea where my my face um, certain things would make my face turn very hot and red Mm -hmm. And then the hotness would go away, but the redness would stay for a really long time. Okay. And that was a chronic problem for me for a few years before I tried the zero carb carnivorous diet. And when I tried the carnivorous diet, that completely went away, the, the flushing, except for a very few things that will trigger it. And coconut oil is one of them. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what component it is in the coconut oil, but... It could be the salicylates. It's definitely causing me inflammation. And if I'm seeing it on my face, who, who knows what else it's doing? Hmm. So I mostly avoid that now. Hmm. Has your symptoms gone better over the course of the years? Like, do you still suffer? Are you still very reactive to these allergens? Or have you seen that maybe your gut or your immune system has managed to heal itself with this diet? Well, for the facial flushing, there's still a couple things that will do it. If I drink alcohol, my face will flush sometimes, especially if it's wine. Mm -hmm. And if I drink decaf coffee, but not regular coffee, or black tea, and I don't know why those particular things, I think they might be a little bit specific to me, mm -hmm. but so I, I just try to avoid those. Mm, yeah <laughs> but how do you like explain this the kind of a diet to other people it might be something very <laughs> controversial and uh, shocking even to it is and you know 
it's hard to be around people without eating. Eating is such a fundamental social activity for mm. people that you can't spend a lot of time getting to know someone before the truth comes out about right, your right. diet. Um, and so I just tell them that it's improved my health if they ask about it and, and just kind of follow their lead with questions. If they're not really interested, I, I don't give much of an explanation. And the more they ask, the more I tell them. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely something that's nothing to be sh nothing to be ashamed of because if it, it is, is the one thing that is improving your health then it's it, you should do it in a sense that uh, you you shouldn't follow a diet just if if, if it's making you feel worse just because Absolutely. you want to hold hold on to some sort of a dogma or idea where's the beef and i also like i've noticed that the carnivore diet has become very popular in social media as well over the past few i don't know months or a half a year or something and a lot of people are doing the zero carb experiments and they're noticing quite a lot of uh, you know improvements why do you think this why do you think there is such an increase in popularity well i think at a background level the popularity was slowly increasing as i said it's been um, almost nine years for me, and actually I began a little bit before that, but I had a brief interlude where I stopped, so I only count the nine years. Mm. But it was very obscure and very little known until, um, well, a couple of websites have come up where people have shown their own personal stories. But I think the most significant factor is due to a fellow called Sean Baker, a doctor who is... A, a great athlete as well and he has taken on a carnivorous diet and has been tweeting about it in particular mm. a lot and organized some people to do what he called an n equals many uh, experiment where uh, he asked people to participate in trying a carnivorous diet and reporting what they found which i think is absolutely great and then after following that, he had the World Carnivore Month, which he promoted for January, and a lot of people participated in that as well. So I think that's what's caused the real explosion lately. Mm, yeah, like Sean Baker is the, let's say, superstar of the carnivorous diet. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Yeah, and he's he's showing a lot of, you know, he holds like world records in rowing, and he does a lot of other incredible athletic things and he's over 50 years old as well i believe like so he's in incredible yes. shape yeah absolutely but i i also like to think that it may be like some sort of a counter attack or a counter slash against the plant-based movement and veganism as well and unfortunately like we all know like the, there are a lot of uh, very diehard vegan activists or vegetarian activists who try to you know force their beliefs and uh, ideologies onto other people and, you know, the problem, I have nothing against veganism. I love, e I love eating vegetables. I love eating meat as well. But uh, at the same time, like, the problem is that if you're trying to tell some, if you're trying to force someone to do something, then you can guarantee that they're going to try to do the opposite. And, and I feel like uh, a lot of people who are doing, like, keto or the zero-carb carnivorous diet, they're simply, you know, backlashing at the vegan movement in a sense of of trying to regain some sort of a uh, sovereignty and and uh, independence. Would you like to sample our vegan bacon? 100% meatless. There may be something to that. The, the interesting thing about veganism, and I have a lot of sympathy, I should say, for veganism because I was brought up vegetarian, and so I had a lot of bias 
growing up thinking that a plant-based diet was the best healthy diet as well. Mm -hmm. But the real, really active vegans seem to be motivated not so much by health, but by a, an ethical feeling about treatment of animals and um, the environmental concerns mm -hmm. and the health health concerns are actually maybe secondary for mm -hmm. many of them. Not everyone. There, there are definitely people who still believe that veganism is the healthiest diet for a human. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's tenable at all given our, our historical record throughout our evolution, mm -hmm. but people do believe that. But the difference is, like you said, because of this ethical component that goes with it, there is a, a big motivation for vegans to feel like it's not only their private choice, but they must impose it on other people. And, mm. and that could definitely cause people who don't want to be vegans <laughs> to say, well, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just making sure no one ever has to eat this. Yeah, like I totally agree with you. Like uh, it's, it's not a lot, like we mentioned earlier, like a lot of people tend to make their health suffer just because they're sticking to this one way of eating and uh, they're actually doing a lot of damage to their body. And uh, yeah, like I'm also like, I have a degree in anthropology and I'm very interested in this, the evolutionary nuances of nutrition and uh, ethics in general as well. And, you know, there is indeed a lot of, uh, a lot of evidence showing that the, one of the biggest contributing factors to the growth of our brain and cognition was that we started to cook and eat meats. And uh, that gave us more calories, it, it decreased the, our gut size, it allowed our brain to increase and there's this very, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very correlated with that and it's called like, in anthropology it's called the expansive tissue hypothesis. Do you know like any other similar findings that uh, show a sim like a similar way that, you know, how, what kind of nutrition influenced our cognition? Yes, so the expensive tissue hypothesis doesn't even need cooking initially because all we needed was access to fat. Our, our pre-human ancestors had, were herbivores, and herbivores, you might think, if you didn't study it, you might think that herbivores are getting most of their calories from carbohydrates, mm -hmm. but it turns out that what they're doing is they're eating fiber, which no mammal can digest, and they're letting the microbes in their colon turn that fiber into fat. So mm -hmm. even herbivores have a high-fat diet. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, in the expensive tissue hypothesis, what those researchers wanted to explain with the hypothesis is the fact that two things happened at the same time. Our brains grew very large and our guts shrank tremendously. And the, the, the idea is that we didn't have enough energy to support the tissue of both all of that intestinal mm. length and the brain at the same time. So we, ha we gave up much, much of our gut in order to support the brain. Mm. But the thing that a lot of people don't think about when they see this is that if you give up that intestinal tissue, you no longer have the ability to host enough microbes to get all your energy from fat that you that comes out of fiber. Mm -hmm. And in the Paleolithic environment, you couldn't get vegetable oils and you couldn't get carbohydrate to a big extent because it was mostly tied up in, in very fibrous vegetables. Even the roots that 
we have today have a lot more available starch than we had then. Mm -hmm. And critically, if we didn't have fire, we wouldn't have been able to get most of even the glucose that was tied up there. So basically the only real possible alternative was turning to meat to get animal fat directly Mm -hmm. for energy. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, the meat had critical nutrients for a brain growth that we simply we can't sir we can't grow a brain without so for example iron and iodine certainly b12 vitamin a and d uh, selenium and choline they're all critical for growing a a brain with the cognitive abilities that we have Mm. so to it, it just doesn't make any sense at all to imagine humans developing without an, a, a great dependence on meat, even mm-hmm. even before cooking happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, you need those fat-soluble vitamins and even like children who are growing in- infants, if they drink like breast milk, then they're getting those fat-soluble vitamins. And uh, it comes to show that these are like a very vital part for overall childhood development, brain development as well. And I also like to think like it's it's important to remember remember that it was probably some sort of a mixture of things that allowed our our brain to increase or maybe like we developed better tools we started to hunt better we during the hunting we we built you know social cooperation we ate more meat uh, we got more fat we got from more calories and uh, it's very difficult to very pinpoint exactly where this kind of a cognitive revolution happened but uh, but the probably the first parts the initial stages were something like uh, something along the lines of uh, of our ancestors finding a carcass opening up the opening up the body of the animal you know drinking the bone marrow uh, eating the liver and things like that getting those nutrients from that and then the, it offset those kind of a chain reaction. Yes, you're right. Uh, it's definitely a lot of things mutually reinforcing each other. And I, I do think, as you said, that we began as scavengers and our hunting developed mm. later after we initially started getting that nutrition from leftover things that we found from other hunters. Yeah, right, right. And those foods are all mo- the most nutritious uh, sources of uh, you know, calories as well, like bone marrow, organ meats, and those things. Uh, we rarely eat those anymore, <laughs> but they're the highly most it's nutritious. It's a shame. Yeah, I got yeah. to try brain very recently for the first time. It's very hard to get here in America. Mm-hmm. Most places don't sell it, um, but I tried it recently, and now it's my favorite food. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like uh, I, I usually most of most of my organ meats come from either liver, or these uh, gelatinous uh, tendons and bone marrow, and uh, those are very delicious. But I agree. The, but there, there, I see, I see, like there's also like some chimps and monkeys also they eat meat, and uh, I recently saw this study where, uh, although it showed that uh, the chimpanzees the most of most of their food comes from fruits and vegetables, but uh, whenever they do have an opportunity to eat like meat or find a carcass or something then they're going to actually you know crave more of that they're going to eagerly eat that meat because you know they want those nutrients and uh, so like when you're in the wild you will naturally develop these kinds of cravings for you know either protein these fat soluble vitamins or these other nutrients that you don't get from plant foods so it's quite natural even in the animal kingdom yes 
It's the mm. most nutrient food, nutrient dense food there is. <laughs> Have you noticed like uh, your similar signals of satiety and uh, or losing cravings when you go on a carnivore diet? Absolutely. Um, one thing that a lot of people notice just going on a ketogenic diet is that most of their cravings subside when they take that sugar away. But I've, I have found that when, once I took away the rest of the plant foods and all of the sweeteners, mm -hmm. that any remaining cravings I had went away to the point where when I was on a regular low-carb diet, I was constantly looking for new recipes mm -hmm. and thinking about food and shopping and Fat trying bombs. to find... Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that enjoying your food is one of the best things that you can spend your life on. I'm not... Um, Mm -hmm. you know, concerned with uh, abstaining from pleasure by any mm -hmm. means, but the freedom that comes with being able to focus on other things besides food <laughs> is really kind of nice. Yeah. I know this steak doesn't exist. Yeah, I totally agree. Like uh, I myself have noticed that definitely after you go keto, then uh, you simply don't even want to want to eat those other un unnatural or processed foods that give you more taste, pref taste pleasure, but they take away your, you know, cognitive, focus and mental mental clarity and things like that so like i would imagine like if you'd have if you indeed follow a very minimalistic uh, nutrition plan then um, the ideal foods that you could eat they would be something sort of uh, along the lines of a zero carb diet with maybe like steak and eggs you, you can happily eat like steak and eggs for the rest of your life and you could get all the nutrition nutrients and uh, you wouldn't get that sick of them either because they're quite you know delicious and uh, they have a huge satiety signal as well yes and the thing about them is that when you're not hungry they're not very appealing whereas mm. something like um, cake for example <laughs> if you're used to eating that I think that it's a common experience that you will you will say yes to that and eat it even though you don't really feel hungry yeah. but you never do that with steak and eggs when <laughs> yeah. you're finished you're finished <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> It's true, like you, you, I would imagine it's very difficult to overeat on steak. Oh, right, the steak! Even if you're very hungry. There's still food, but I don't want to eat it. But uh, let's, can you give us like a, maybe like a guesstimate or a basic overview of maybe like your macronutrient ratios? Do you count those, those as well? I don't on a regular basis. A few times I have wanted to just find out what it was like for, just for interest. And the times that I've measured... It typically comes out to about one to one grams of fat per gram of proteins. And that's um, somewhere around, I don't know, 70% fat. Mm. Um, sometimes as much as... Uh, as much as 35% protein, but sometimes as little as 20. And I would say it, it pretty much always falls in that range. Mm -hmm. So so it's like a semi-keto keto diet, you know, although you're not in ketosis all the time, I would imagine you're like you're still very, you have higher rates of uh, lipolysis and fat burning, I would imagine still. Yeah, I, and I, there have been times um, periods over the nine years where my ketosis has been a lot lower, like just barely in ketosis, maybe 0.4 if I measure it. Um, but other times where it's been closer to one or two even, and it, it just kind of varies. Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking is that even if I'm at a point where I'm in only in mild ketosis when I'm eating this way, it only takes 
a very short time, a little bit of exercise or a little bit longer without food to get into ketosis. Whereas if you're on a high carb diet, you basically have to stop eating for two whole days before you'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's definitely true. Like, there's a huge difference between spiking insulin and having higher blood sugar because of eating protein or because of eating you know, carbs. Your body is already very geared towards burning fat and ketones and it only takes like skip a meal or yeah, do high intensity exercise for just a few minutes and you'll be in deeper ketosis right away on a, on a like, uh, the lower your gly- glycogen stores already are. Exactly. So it's, it's, there's a huge difference there. But uh. Like I would imagine that it's not 100% zero carb carb diet either, because you know muscle tissue it has some glycogen in it, so which which is like stored carbohydrates. Do you know if there is any way of you know quantifying or knowing how that glycogen would get metabolized if you eat it? Yeah, I th- what actually happens with the glycogen as soon as the as the um, muscle or the tissue is is killed, mm-hmm. the all of the glycogen gets used up by the muscle trying to stay alive and it gets turned into lactate. So unless it's been flash frozen, there won't actually be any glycogen anymore. It'll all be lactate. Now lactate, um, it's the same as in yogurt where the fermentation would change the carbohydrate into lactate for the most part. And lactate is a substrate for gluconeogenesis. Mm -hmm. So it provides that available substrate and it's unclear to me though um, if that would force um, glucose to be made because mm-hmm. as we know there's there's a demand and a supply mm-hmm. um, for gluconeogenesis and I think you need both to actually turn it into glucose. Yeah, right yeah like eating more protein won't won't create uh, glucose unless your body is actually in a situation where it needs to do it Right. It could, it could lead to more glucose by virtue of raising insulin, which then might shut off or lower your ketogenesis, which then creates more of a demand for glucose. So in an indirect roundabout way, but certainly not just by virtue of being there. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, like lactate can, you, can be used as a substitute for glucose. And I would imagine if you, if you, cons- if you, if you would eat slightly more lactate, then it would be simply used for your brain as glucose because your brain and heart tissue, they still need very small amounts of glucose every day, even on a keto diet. And right. I, would, I would imagine that would be simply used as, 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 as that and uh, you would preserve your, uh, the gluconeogenesis that ha- occurs over by converting your body fat into glucose. So like, it's still like your body is going to adapt in a very efficient manner, I believe. I think so too. Mm-hmm. But uh, like we talked about protein and insulin, and uh, but but uh, what about like these uh, mechanisms of uh, mTOR, the the anabolic uh, mechanism of the mammalian target of rapamycin, and uh, we know that you know protein and meat they raise mTOR, which makes you more anabolic and grow new tissue, and uh, it's going to be used for protein synthesis, muscle growth, but at the same time it can also promote fat gain, and uh, it, it may it may pro- there are some people who think that they can also promote uh, cancer and tumor growth. So what are your thoughts on, thoughts on mTOR? Yeah, you're right that mTOR is um, stimulated by protein and that it's anabolic. mTOR is, is detecting nutrition. And so in order to lower it, you would have to 
either fast or or eat a vegan diet, for example, um, which would be a strong signal that you're not getting enough nutrition. Mm -hmm. And in in many animals, in in studies of longevity, they have noticed that fasting or caloric restriction will will stimulate a a trigger for longevity. And the idea is that you're making a trade-off because um, you want to save your body for a time when there's a lot of nutrition available before you reproduce. And so in many animals, when there's a, a, a continuous signal for some time that nutrition isn't very abundant, mm -hmm. the body will go into a kind of preservation mode that will translate into longer life. Mm -hmm. So the concern might be that if you're, if you're giving yourself all this nutrition mm -hmm. and getting the signal from it, that then you're going to have to make this trade-off in longevity and health and, and uh, maybe cancer as well. Mm -hmm. One thing that is possibly good news that I've discovered is that humans are, are unique among species in being able to uh, become ketogenic without caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. um, it might seem obvious to anyone who's been on a ketogenic diet for a long time and who's maintaining their weight and who isn't um, restricting calories that they're eating to satiety and they're still in ketosis. But um, that's not actually how it happens in other animals. So for example, dogs who are quite close to us physiologically, if you put them on an all-meat diet, which is their natural diet, they're not in ketosis and they will only get into ketosis if you fast them or give them very intense exercise. And even then they won't develop the rate of ketosis that we have. Mm. So the, the ketogenic state is, is the, uh, some uh, biochemists or, or uh, medical researchers think about our phys physiological state as having two phases. We have the anabolic and catabolic or um, the, the ketogenic and the glucose state as, as some people have recently been calling it, where one of them is all about synthesizing not only muscle tissue and fat tissue, but also, for example, um, neuro, neurogenesis and mitochondrial biogenesis. But they won't grow more unless they've had the chance to be in a ketogenic state where the hormonal signals say, this is what we need to grow. Mm -hmm. We need to grow more neurons and we need to grow more mitochondria. So then when we get the fuel again, that's what we'll prioritize. And so people have been concerned that you're, you need to have a little bit of both. And in, in humans, we have this unique ability to be both ketogenic and fully protein replete at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so my thinking on this is that if you are in a, on a ketogenic diet most of the time or in ketosis a lot of the time, then those pulses of protein aren't going to actually be detrimental the way they might be if you were in a constantly mm. um, glucose state where you mm. never have this chance to get the stimulus to get the autophagy to tear tear things that aren't working as well down and, and give you a chance to rebuild in the way that you want so I, I kind of think that this is the ideal situation <laughs> and that 
we definitely don't want to be without protein or at a limited level of protein in a chronic state because I think that would be unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, uh, because mTOR isn't only raised by protein or meat, the biggest or like insulin and uh, carbohydrates, they also raise mTOR because they also signal the body that there's an abundance of nutrients. Insulin is a nutrient signaling hormone. And uh, I would imagine a person who is eating a high carb diet, like they're eating bananas all day, they're constantly experiencing these uh, spikes of insulin, then that's actually a, might more, a much more dangerous or an anti-longevity signal much more than uh, eating like uh, keto because, because, you know, yeah, like you're raising insulin, you're signaling mTOR and you're doing it more frequently. And the problem with these high carb diets as well might be that you, you experience less fasting and uh, you experience less ketosis overall. On a keto diet, you're already in a very semi-fasted state, even if you are eating, even if you are having a, 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 an ordinary keto meal, and uh, you also like experience less hunger, you're going to sp spontaneously skip more meals. You're transiently in deeper ketosis all the time, and uh, that's going to raise these other autophagy benefits, and uh, it's going to lower mTOR by default. So that's, that's a, like you mentioned, it is like, I believe, like a very <laughs> ideal situation in, in this sense that the mTOR is going to have like a less of a negative effect in terms of longevity. And there are also like different types of mTOR. Like uh, we know that mTOR can happen in muscle tissue and it can happen in liver as well. And uh, we've seen that ketones, they're going to spare or they're going to raise uh, the mTOR in muscle tissue, but they're going to you, they're going to inhibit mTOR in the liver tissue. So what it basically means is that you're going to use that mTOR for protein synthesis and uh, muscle repair and growth while, while still uh, maintaining the longevity benefits of uh, not, not promoting it as cancer growth. So that, that it's like almost like a win-win situation. I didn't realize that, although it doesn't surprise me. There are often hormonal signaling things that do differ in the liver from the muscle. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've heard yeah. similar things about um, the effect of protein on liver versus muscle, insulin, and glucagon, where you can get, if you're in a protein-sufficient ketogenic state, you can get anabolism in the muscle mm. at the same time as catabolic signals in the livers in, in order to give you energy. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, ketones are like very protein-sparing, and uh, they can, uh, some research is showing that they can actually stimulate protein synthesis without, you know, either without even protein or without carbohydrates or insulin or anything, so they're <laughs> miracle molecules in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, I would also like imagine that it's also like a matter of context. Someone who is uh, exercising hard like a bodybuilder or a CrossFit athlete or even uh, someone who's doing endurance, they still need, they need that mTOR. mTOR and insulin are both very vital signals for longevity. And you, you, without mTOR, you would simply die. And uh, if you're exercising hard, then you need, you need to repair those muscles. You need higher levels of mTOR versus someone who is you know, being sedentary or you know, yeah, it's a matter of context and people have to simply know how to balance it. The meatloaf! That's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to, um, you don't want to, at the limit, it would be just never eat again, right? And that, right. that's just not very sustainable. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and uh, another th big thing that gets raised is like whether or not our digestive tract is uh, designed to digest meat. And I think like one of the biggest myths is that uh, meat is going to get rotten in the colon. What, do, what does the science tell us about uh, meat digestion? 
Well, that's, that's a kind of funny one because what it means for something to rot is that bacteria digest it. And actually our digestive systems are optimized to digest fat and protein with hydrochloric acid in the stomach such that by the time it gets into the colon, then it, it's, or into the small intestines, it's, it's ready to just be distributed to the body. The mm. only stuff that goes to the colon to rot is actually fiber because right. we literally can't digest it and we literally need bacteria to digest it and that's what, what <laughs> rotting means. So I think it's really ironic that people say this. Yeah, like the opposite of what's actually going on. That is that is true. Yeah, like uh, bloating and gas is mostly caused by fiber, <laughs> and it's a signal that uh, your bacteria are producing these short chain fatty acids. And uh, yeah, like it's it's quite uh, funny to think about it. Completely, that's one of the the biggest improvements. I I did a survey of some people who had gone from a, a normal ketogenic, very low-carb diet that included plants to a zero-carb diet and asked them a bunch of questions about what things changed. And, and one of the most consistent things was that almost everybody had some level of gas or bloating before zero-carb, mm -hmm. which completely, completely resolved on zero-carb. And it stands to reason because really the, the source of all of that is is bacteria fermenting the fiber. If mm -hmm. you take away the fiber, it goes away. Mm -hmm. Many people actually are finding if they have a serious digestive issue like Crohn's or IBS or colitis, that zero carb com gives them complete remission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes sense from, uh, from the uh, perspective of plants as well, because plants, they build up these toxins or uh, yeah, pathogens inside their inside their uh, you know fiber tissue, just so the animals wouldn't eat them. <laughs> so it's like an evolutionary defense mechanism from them, their part. And uh, yeah, like people who, uh, like a hunter gatherer who would eat uh, uh, some sort of a plant, then they would simply get sick and not eat it. So it's natural selection in a sense. But people in the modern world they have access to these more plant foods more frequently as well. Yes. So. You're absolutely right. I mean, a plant can't run away. So any plant that didn't evolve some kind of defense wouldn't have survived very long. And although there are some physical defenses like thorns and bark, most of their defenses are biochemical and um, really made to kill insects and herbivores. Mm. And herbivores and plants have had this long kind of arms race in which the herbivores are getting strategies to detoxify. One of the main strategies is to eat a wide variety of plants so that you're not exposed to one toxin too many times. Right. But the vast majority of plants, if you look at them, like you look outside your window, how many of those plants out there can you eat? None of them probably, <laughs> right? When we had a few that we found that didn't kill us and we bred them extensively, but even those ones have some level of toxicity it's just low enough that we can tolerate it or maybe we bred some of it down because usually the toxicity not always but usually is associated with a bitter taste which mm -hmm. is part of our evolved defense system to, to say oh don't eat mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, and so the more we bred out the bitter we've reduced some of the toxicity and mm -hmm. fermenting it can reduce some of the toxicity it's kind of like taking your the gut system that the herbivore has 
and doing it outside of your body in a vat, mm. put the bacteria in, break down some of those toxins. It's never 100%, but it does help somewhat. Mm. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, it, these... Uh these uh, plants they, who, that have these toxins, they're bitter. And the bit, we, bitterness is also, in general, is, a, is an indication that it's going to detoxify the liver. And uh, what I would imagine is that, you know, we, all, we still know that there are some beneficial compounds in uh, plants as well, like these uh, polyphenols and uh, flavonoids that have a, like a longevity benefit and they're going to boost the immune system. So maybe like this, there's this sort of a small hormetic response in terms of consuming these uh, polyphenols and uh, making your liver and making your immune system more robust, in a sense, against these, uh, against these toxins. And it has like a small hormetic effect, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when there is a positive immune response, it's usually because we've gotten that small amount of toxin in your body. So it's, okay, we have to put up a defense. Hmm. And then we may benefit... In some cases, people argue that we benefit more from those defensive uh, pr productions yeah. that we make than, for, than we lose from the toxicity itself. Right. So yeah. there's a bit of a dose consideration. Mm. Another thing that I learned recently, and um, I, I may be misquoting, but I'm pretty sure that, the, that many of those bitter polyphenols actually cause signals in the body that would in, inhibit mTOR, and one plausible kind of reasoning that you might think is going on here is that if you, if we in our evolutionary history were suddenly eating plants, that could be a strong signal that there isn't enough food available that we're mm. resorting to these things. Right. So it, it could be that we have learned over time that if we, if we're eating plants, we should interpret that as a signal to, um, assume that there isn't going to be a, an, enough nutrition and do that same old strategy of trying to live a little longer hmm. at that time. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, uh, because, uh, there is like, if you consume too many cruciferous vegetables, for instance, in small amounts, they're very beneficial for your longevity. They have anti-cancer benefits and so on. But, but there's also like these, uh, compounds that are going to lower your thyroid functioning and decrease your metabolic rate in a sense, especially if you eat them raw. So it's like a very uh, longevity, longevity signal. So I would imagine like you, you would want to, if you want to balance these two, then you would want to consume, you would still want to consume some of these uh, plants and get the hormetic benefit, but at the same time, not overdo it either. Like <laughs> it's, it's, it's very unnatural to, you know, cram down, uh, I would say like a half a kilo of broccoli into a smoothie and uh, you know blend it all together and then drink it and it's it's a huge, it's, it's it's an unnatural and it's going to actually have, I would imagine it's going to have a negative effect on uh, both the hormesis and longevity yes and i don't know um, how we would go about finding out if there is an optimal dose or if it's better to just leave them out in the first mm. place and not be exposed to the toxin i think that's still an empirical question definitely yeah of course, but uh, why do why do some people feel that or they report they're stuffed or bloated if they if they eat meat? Is it some sort of anecdotal evidence or? I don't know. I would wonder if it's because they're eating it with something else. Mm. If they're eating meat and bread, for example, as opposed to just bread, there could be some kind of 
the bread could be inhibiting the digestive process and right. then it makes it difficult for the meat. I have never heard anyone say that meat alone caused them bloating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would imagine as well, like that's, that's, the, that's the issue here. Like there's probably this conflicting, uh, conflicting uh, processes that occur. Like if you consume meat, then you require more acid. And if you, cons if you consume like these vegetables, a ton of vegetables and grain products, breads and stuff like that, then you don't need that much, much acid. And if you con combine like, like uh, starches and the uh, meats together, then it's already going to cause uh, some uh, bloating and uh, digestive stress, or at least uh, if it, 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 will be, it, it will make the meat digested uh, more in a more difficult manner or, or something like that. Yeah, I think that could be it, that the, the other foods are, are interfering with digestion to such an extent that it makes the meat difficult. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard like that some people who are doing the carnivore diet, they're actually consuming some fruit as well. So like, does, does fruit count or how does it influence the digestion of meat? Fruits, interesting. And from a toxin perspective, we would expect that to be the lowest toxicity because um, most fruit is produced in order to attract animals that will swallow it whole and... Um, and then distribute the seeds, so mm. birds and bears, for example. And so there tends to be less toxicity, although <laughs> they have to keep the toxins up there to make them not edible until the seed is right, ready. So there's, there's, got, there's always going to be some residual toxins. And so if I were to take a wild guess at what plant matter would be the safest, I would probably say fruit. Mm. Um, but I, I don't actually know what effect adding fruit to a carnivorous diet would have in terms of digestion. I haven't experimented mm -hmm. with it at all or heard about people experimenting with it. I'd like to hear more if you get more, more anecdotes about that. <laughs> yeah, like I heard some people that say that if they would, I, th I think like uh, even like uh, Ted Neyman, he has said that he eats like meat and these low-carb low fruits like cucumbers, tomatoes or berries and, uh, and some, there are some other people as well who consume meat and they have like apples or something like that to get some I don't know to crave their to satisfy their sweet tooth or either to get some more micronutrients but yeah other than that I, I haven't heard like um, I don't know like what's the rationale behind uh, beyond that some of the benefit from carnivorous diet seems to be actually um, not just getting adequate meat, but actually removing the plants. For, di for people with digestive problems, obviously that would be the fiber. For myself and, and for people with autoimmune conditions, the benefit doesn't seem to have anything to do, well, it could, but as far as I know, doesn't seem to have anything to do with removing the fiber and what I'm a lot more... Uh, leaning toward believing is that the anti-nutrients that are in plants, particularly lectins and, and other kinds of anti-nutrients mm -hmm. are actually damaging um, the intestinal permeability and causing an immune response that right. causes an attack on your own tissues. And so the, 
the top ones for those would be grains and legumes. But if you're already on a low carb diet, those are already going to be gone. Mm. But the main difference I think between a low carb diet and a zero carb diet in, um, in terms of the highest, um, the highest suspicious plants are going to be those nightshades Mm. like tomatoes and peppers. And you mentioned another one um, that's gone out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but cu- I don't know, cucumber might be one of the relatively safer ones. It would be really interesting to find out on a vegetable by vegetable basis which ones are safest. And there's probably some individual variability in tolerance to them. Right. But I do suspect that the, the toxic effects of different plants, that some are just easier in general than others. Yeah, definitely. And uh, maybe like fruit and apples and oranges they're definitely there's not much fiber in them most of it's fructose and it may be simply digested a lot easier than than grains or legumes and definitely like vegetables as well unless you have fructose malabsorption which some people do <laughs> yeah that's that's a whole other story <laughs> and, and I, 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 I would imagine how it would affect like the ketogenic state as well like if you're eating only meat then you would want to stay in ketosis most like most of the time and you would want to have still you would want to avoid fructose because of the liver glycogen replenishment effect so like right you would be better off by eating only meat rather than having fruit right but like what's what's the role of fiber what's the deal of fiber then like people say that it's very healthy and you need to eat your fiber like how how does how does that work on a carnivore diet Well, the reasons historically that people have thought that fiber have been good for you, I think it started with Burkett, who was looking at um, some indigenous people, forgive me, I don't remember where, but he, he was trying to figure out why they didn't have the digestive problems like diverticulitis that people eating Western diets did. And one thing he noticed was that their diets were higher in fiber. And so he postulated that the fiber was the difference. Mm-hmm. Of course, as we've already discussed, <laughs> if you have a, a digestive problem, actually removing fiber is one of the best things that you can do. The fiber is very, very irritating. So that, that hypothesis doesn't really stand up very well. A second idea that came along later was that the fiber is going to reduce the blood glucose load um, of your food. And so it's better to have higher fiber in your diet But the whole premise of that is that you're already eating a high-carb diet. Mm. And so, of course, if you replace some of the refined carbohydrates with fiber, then that's going to be better Mm. because you're not going to get as much glucose load. Mm -hmm. But for someone who's not eating a high-carb diet, that hardly has any – that has no relevance, right? Mm -hmm. And then the third uh, now very popular idea is that you need fiber to feed uh, the microbes in your gut and, of course – no one would argue that having a healthy gut microbiome is important, but we really, we, we really step beyond the bounds of our evidence when we talk about what, con, what a healthy gut biome consists of. We, have, mm-hmm. we have a whole bunch of associational studies that say in high-carb dieters, these strains are associated with health and these strains are associated with these other conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's a big flaw in that because when you change when you take out the high carb you're going to have a completely different gut biome and there's no reason to presume that we should have the same strains 
And then um, the other consideration, you know how we talked about fermenting food um, to try to deal with the naturally present toxins and fibers that are already there. Well, I think that a lot of the benefit, insofar as there is a benefit that people are seeing from taking probiotics, for example, if they're eating a lot of vegetables, then you need to support strains that will help break down those vegetables. Mm -hmm. And if you don't eat them often, then those strains will naturally go away. Mm-hmm. But if you're not eating those vegetables in the first place, then I'm not sure there's any good reason left for supporting a strain that's the main purpose of which is to help you digest yeah. those vegetables in the first place. Mm. And from an evolutionary perspective, I just don't find it plausible that any bacteria that wouldn't stay colonized in our gut if we didn't eat for a couple of days, which must have happened all the time, mm-hmm. uh, we wouldn't have, and that we would have to keep constantly be replenishing. Yeah. So I find the whole theory a little bit shaky. Yeah, like it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because fasting is already gonna, you know, quote unquote, wipe out your gut bacteria in a sense is that it's gonna balance itself like right according to how the body finds needed like it's gonna it's going to repopulate the microbiome based on uh, how it finds uh, beneficial for the entire organism automatically while fasting with autophagy autophagy is going to convert it's gonna eat those dead cells and it's gonna probably gonna eat those uh, unnecessary um, bacteria as well and convert it into energy so it's going to establish a baseline in a sense while you're fasting in a very deep fasted state that's so, right. So and then if you think about other carnivores in, in the world, like um, felines, for example, they, they're not eating fiber and that doesn't give them an unhealthy gut. So you've got to think about that too mm-hmm. in terms of what's actually needed. Mm-hmm. And I, I also like believe like even though you're not eating fiber, you're still feeding your gut bacteria because, yeah, like we mentioned, uh, the, the, the creation of short-chain fatty acids, it can also happen with things like you know, eating meat or something like, and butter. It, it, it also promotes these uh, short-chain fatty acids, which, which is actually the end result of eating fiber already. <laughs> like, That's right. And yeah. a lot of, in fact, pretty much all the literature that I've read supporting fiber as a role in gut health comes down to the downstream effects of butyrate. Mm-hmm. And if you, I, I saw an experiment, it's, it's on my blog where they took dogs and gave them an all meat diet and a, and a diet containing fiber and measured how much volatile fatty acids their gut produced. And it was essentially the same. So we obviously don't need that for butyrate. And if we don't need it for butyrate and butyrate is the main concern, then the argument disappears. Yeah. Like the, the, the gut bacteria, the healthy, but good bacteria, they want to, they want the butyrate, not the fiber in a sense. And you can maybe simply take out the middleman, which is, which is plant fiber. <laughs> and then you're going to have less digestive issues, or at least, you know, lower your carb intake, lower your fiber intake and uh, reap the benefits of the short-chain fatty acids without the inflammation. Let me tell you something, brother. Let me tell you something, Mr. Broccoli. But uh, w- one thing I do have noticed is that 
uh, the studies done on on people who are living in the blue zones, the people who have exceptionally expect, longer life rates and they live past hundred, they have like a very robust and diverse microbiome in a sense that they're not vegan, they're not paleo, they're not keto, and they're not carnivorous. They eat like a very wide variety of foods, and that that's going to cause this sort of a random and also like a balanced microbiome in a sense that their gut is simply, uh, I would imagine that, that their gut has become very robust in the sense that it's capable of digesting with these variety of foods. And that's going to support the immune system, which is already located in the gut. And uh, they're gonna, that's, that's the reason why they have, you know, they have, they're stronger against these infections and they may, they may reap the benefits of improved health overall. Have you noticed any changes in your like immune system functioning? Yeah, uh, I absolutely have. The first eight years of the nine, I never got sick, except for one Christmas. I had uh, laryngitis. It was so it was sort of like a cold. But eight whole years, no flu, no cold. My children were getting sick. <laughs> Other people, I was exposed to a lot of germs, but I just did not get sick at all. And that was absolutely something I'd never experienced. This year, I have gotten um, a sinus infection after allergies a couple of times, which was very disappointing to me to, uh, <laughs> to end that, that great streak. But even if you count the number of times I've been sick in the last year, and, and spread that out to the, to the nine years that I've been a carnivore, it's, it's less than any other t- period of time in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah. But uh, have you, have you uh, like, tried eating these fermented foods as well? Because the fermented foods are they're more, they're easier to be converted into butyrate and uh, short-chain fatty acids. Have you, have you noticed have you experimented with like sauerkraut or kimchi or you mentioned that you eat a pickle, but <laughs> yeah. anything like that? If I eat, if I eat one of those, um, just like one and then don't do it again, it doesn't seem to have any detrimental effect on me. The effects that I'm looking for in particular are mood effects. And I know that, um, in the early days of my experimenting with carnivory, one thing that I came across was the GAPS diet. I don't know if you know of it, yeah. but it, it comes in a couple of stages and the um, theory behind it is that it's supposed to um, heal your gut and that that's the cause of the disease. And so they have the first stage where you eat only broth and then the second stage you add the meat from the broth and then the third stage you add fermented foods like sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe this is what I'm going through. So maybe I should try this. And when I added the fermented foods, I started to have mood problems again. Mm-hmm. So that was a long time ago. I haven't tried it again recently. But my feeling is that um, fermented foods, that I still have some problem with fermented foods. It could be the histamines. That's something we haven't talked about. But there are biogenic amines in, in fermented foods and in aged foods. So... Mm-hmm. Um, hard cheeses and salami and you know when we were talking about how my face would flush in response Mm -hmm. to coconut oil and and Mm -hmm. decaf coffee if i eat a lot of high histamine foods the flushing will either start to come on its own or will come much quicker in response to other things so i think there may be a component of histamine intolerance in my particular issues that some people might also 
find interesting to look into. Mm, wow, well, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's very, very individual based. But uh, do you take like any supplements, or are you getting all of your nutrients from just uh, just steak? Over the years, I've tried taking different supplements, um, but none of them really for a long time because I never really found any added benefit. And mm. so right now, I'm taking no supplements. I haven't for many months. Yeah, it's, it's, it comes to show that as well, like you, you, can, you can get more nutrients from animal products because for someone to successfully do a vegan diet, then they would have to supplement a whole lot. Yeah, absolutely. Vegans have to be very careful. And I think it's only in the most recent few decades that they've even, you could even sustainably be a vegan because of access to certain nutrients that just wouldn't have been available in a packaged mm. form until quite right. recently. Yeah. There, there wasn't, there never was an all vegan uh, hunter gatherer tribe or something that, that voluntarily went vegan in a sense. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I just don't think it could go across more than a generation without a uh, failure to thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But uh, like, uh, where do you get your meat from in, in the sense like uh, how do you source it? When I first started out, I was in a much more compromised financial position. And so, and, and I also didn't know a lot about meat. And so I just got all my meat from the conventional grocery store. And that was enough in and of itself to completely heal the problems that I was facing and so i think that's a viable solution of course the longer i've been eating this way the more i care about the sources that i'm getting from being first of all um, sustainable from the point of view of the farmer and um, that treat their animals well because i do actually care about animals <laughs> even though i do eat them <laughs> i don't think that those are in opposition um and also i've come to believe that there can be advantages just from my own selfish perspective in meat that's been raised where the animals had more opportunity to be on pasture mm -hmm. getting sunlight and getting more of the natural range of nutrition that they that they evolved to get so mm. i i these days i only buy eggs from hens that have been raised on pasture i get a lot of my pork is pastured and i'm less I, i'm more inclined to buy regular beef just because it's been very difficult to find pastured beef that is fatty enough for me mm. <laughs> and i'm just not willing to buy a piece of steak that isn't marbled <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah so. like i also believe like the that the yeah grass-fed steak or wild game it has it's gonna have less fat tissue because they're so lean and uh yeah you would want to have actually fattier pieces of meat when exactly. you're when you're doing keto and things like that and also like th there's actually some trends where the grass-fed the grass-fed cow is actually going to be fed they're going to be fed grass the most of their life and like a few months before they're going to get uh, slaughtered they're going to have be fed like uh, greens and corn in a sense to fat fatty their up and you know build up this marble in their fat tissue 
So yeah. That's right. And yeah, it's not as different as they make it sound when they just say grass fed and grain fed. That's that's really quite misleading. Mm-hmm. And that I don't think that necessarily feeding cattle for the last couple of months on grain to make them fat is necessarily a bad thing. And if it creates a better product for us and we do need the fat, mm. then that's that's the right thing to do. Mm, yes. And it probably doesn't have like uh, any negative side effects in terms of hormones or, or other micronutrients. I don't believe it does. Some people say that the grain will result in a higher level of omega-6 fatty acids, mm-hmm. and that might be true, but I, I also think that the amount we're talking about is so small that in the absence of me eating seed oils, it's not really a concern yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and like, like if, you're, if you don't, it's the, if, if that's the only source of omega-6, then it's nothing in a sense. Exactly. But what about how do how do you go about uh, explaining the environmental issues of eating meat? You know that's one of the biggest uh, main points of uh, veganism, and uh, that we should go on a plant-based diet because you know we can't sustain the planet with uh, animal products. I don't have all the answers and haven't researched it deeply, but my understanding from what I have learned is that we can't sustain the earth without animal products. There's all this land that we cannot possibly use for crops that livestock can be raised on. Mm. There is all this uh, fibrous material, grass, all over the planet that we cannot use for food, but cattle can, and they turn it into a higher quality, Mm, well, they turn it into, just something we can eat in the first place. Right. And, and so I'm inclined to think that it's exactly the opposite, that we have no chance of feeding the world unless we make use of, of cattle and right. other ruminants and, and pigs. Yeah, it's, it's true like that the cattle is going to produce better manure, better, better. It's going to improve soil quality, which itself is going to allow for better plants and vegetation as well because if you if you were to create this sort of a, a closed system of only plant products and things like that without cattle or without predation in nature then you would simply it would have, it would develop into a wasteland unless you start to artificially use different uh, you know gmos different pesticides and uh, things like that so it's 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 going to be a lose lose situation you need both you need to have like a balance of uh, raising the cattle and then using it for vegetation as well. So it's in nature, it's, a, it's a, like a natural system where everything is connected and everything is a, like a vital component. You're absolutely right. The, the planet as we found it when we awakened <laughs> was, was already teeming with animals on the grasslands that were a vital part of the ecosystem. And in fact, people complain about cattle uh, releasing carbon dioxide, but actually the, the, carbon, the carbon gets put back into the soil by, mm. by those animals. Mm. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, but at the same time, I I think like it would be very difficult for the entire planet to go on a carnivore diet, or also like there's definitely like it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be the perfect diet for everyone, and everyone uh, they don't need to do it either. So like, who who would you recommend someone to try it out? I would say the best candidates to try a carnivore diet are. People who are on a ketogenic diet and just aren't satisfied with the results, for example, they haven't lost as much weight as they thought that they or they hope that they would lose, that's one good reason to try it. Mm. 
Anyone who has any kind of digestive discomfort at all should try it. Uh, people who have autoimmune diseases like arthritis or asthma or plagued with allergies, uh, those are good candidates. And people with mood disorders are also um, very likely, in my experience, to benefit from a carnivorous diet. Okay. Do you have like and a also anyone who's just really into experimenting <laughs> and wants to see what happens. Just give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Do, do you like have any tips to give them as well? Some, some pointers for starting? Well, um, prefer whole cut pieces of meat rather than uh, processed meats, um, just mo mainly because you don't know what's been added in and because of histamines. Mm -hmm. Make sure you're getting enough fat because a lot of people, if they try to eat too lean, will start to have energy problems. Mm -hmm. They'll either overeat on protein, which can be taxing on the body, right. or they just won't eat enough. Right. Um, and follow your hunger. Don't worry about, don't worry too much about trying to count things at first because you, you'll be surprised to find that once you remove foods from your diet that we weren't, that we, that weren't there when we were evolving our hunger signals, suddenly your hunger signals start working right. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, because <laughs> plants want them to be eaten in a sense, or fruit wants to be eaten so that you could, it could, uh, so that it could, you know, uh, be spread more, more across the, more across different regions more easily. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, like spiking insulin and spiking blood sugar is going to co more, create more cravings for those foods as well, I believe. Fish meat is practically a vegetable. Where would you like the zero carb movement to go from this point onwards? Right now, what I would mostly like to see is for more people who have those kinds of conditions I just talked about, just get the information that this is something that they can try because a lot of those diseases, people have been taught that they just have to live with them. I thought I was going to have to live with depression for the rest of my life and manage it because I had some kind of brain imbalance that, that was a, a way in which I was broken. Mm. And that turned out not to be the case. There are other people who are in crippling pain all the time who don't have to be. Mm -hmm. So my first wish is that is that people hear about it so they have an opportunity to try it. And then secondly, that, that people, that it gains wider acceptance as a viable alternative um, so that without all the mythology that you need plants. Because yeah. as you said, maybe not everybody has to do that. A lot of people can probably tolerate a lot more plant material right. and still be healthy. Mm -hmm. But if if you feel better without them, you shouldn't have to live with worry that you're missing out on something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Like, and at the same time, it shouldn't become like a confirmation bias as well. Like, okay, I'm feeling slightly inflamed. That means I have to stop eating fiber and stop eating plants. You know, maybe you simply eat too much protein, which itself can promote inflammation in a sense. You know, like yeah, you have to simply experiment and see. Like. Yeah. Self-experiments are very hard because there's so many factors. We all wish that we had a dozen uh, cloned people to try out different things with all the factors the same, but <laughs> we don't get that. <laughs> right. Like, have, actually, have you heard about uh, these uh, Bitcoin and carnivore diet people who are using only Bitcoin and eating only meat? <laughs> have you heard about <laughs> these people? 
Yes, I'm a big cryptocurrency advocate myself. Okay. Um, I, my, um, you mentioned at the beginning actually about the least authority enterprises. That's actually my my ex husband is the founder of that, and he also uh, is the founder of the Zcash okay. company. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, he and I, and especially he, have been interested in cryptocurrency for uh, since long before we met each other. And mm. I'm very excited to see this becoming a reality. Mm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, but so your family is also eating a carnivore diet. My children, you mean? Yeah, like your children and your husband. So my ex-husband mostly eats a carnivore diet, but I know that he has a weakness for cookies and sometimes okay. go off the diet. But he's there. He's very much a proponent of it. He's seen the health benefits himself. He's tried it many times and is very much in favor of it. The children, uh, when they were younger, I had a lot more control over what they were eating and gave them the best diet that I could do. And my youngest child still eats a very um, animal-based diet with only a few plants thrown in. Mm -hmm. But the older ones who are teenagers, they, they're doing their own thing, and I, it's not really my place to force them to eat a certain way, just mm -hmm. to let them know what, what to do if they have health problems. I think they know they have right. a good education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that's <laughs> I that, think that's very important as well. But yeah, Amber, like we've been talking for quite a while, and I really enjoyed. It. I learned a lot. And uh, before I ask my last question, like where can people learn more about you and your work? Thank you. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Keto Carnivore, and I also have two different websites. One is more focused on ketogenic diets and odd scientific things that have occurred to me and some of my presentations are there. That's at ketotic.org, K-E-T-O-T-I-C.org. Mm -hmm. And then I have a more personal blog that in the last few years has leaned mostly toward things about carnivorous eating. And mm -hmm. that's Empirica, like empirical, but with no A and it's a dot C-A. So mm -hmm. E-M-P-I-R-I -I dot C-A. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, we'll leave all the links to the show notes. And uh, my last question is like, what's this one piece of advice or a practice that you wish you'd adopted earlier that improved your body and your mind? Huh. Well, <laughs> other than carnivorous eating, I, I, <laughs> it's completely changed my life. So it, there's no, nothing bigger than that. Okay. So that's, so that's your answer then? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it, indeed. Like it's, it's, it has definitely shown probably uh, it, it has helped a lot of other people, I believe as well. Give me all the bacon and eggs you have. But Amber, thanks for coming to the show. Like I definitely really enjoyed talking to you and I learned a lot about not only nutrition and, but you know, human physiology and evolution in general. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sim. It was a great pleasure. Okay. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Power podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on the iTunes or the other social media platforms. Definitely check out the show notes for the topics that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.